Hello and welcome to Conversations from the A&F podcast. In this episode, we speak to Nancy about her experience of entering the care system as a very little child, growing up in foster homes and ultimately working with children and families to promote the voice of children and create paths to healing for them. Nancy has lived a remarkable life and in some parts this is a hard listen, but certainly thought-provoking. As always, if you have experience of adoption, fostering or special guardianship from any perspective, personal or professional, and would like to share that on the podcast, please do get in touch through our Facebook page, through Twitter, or you can email us at theanfpodcast at gmail.com. My name is Nancy Mealy at the moment. Um, I'm a uh, professionally, um, I'm a um, therapeutic counsellor. For a lot of years, I've done uh, attachment and trauma therapy with children and families within the care system and adoption. And that's one of my main passions is, uh, I did think I wanted to be a social worker when I first started out, but then when I did experience in residential care, I realized that there were too many ties stopping me from doing what I wanted to actually do and too much red tape and it would be too frustrating. So instead I decided to train to be able to sit on the carpet with the child and help them to um, gain change from within rather than wait for other people to see and be able to facilitate what they needed. Um, Sorry. No, I was going to say, you sort of that, you said that's part of who you are. Tell me a bit. Half. <laughs> I have quite a few hats um, at the minute. Uh, I had a couple of years out recently because I've I've done that work for twenty odd years, even though I only look seventeen. Um, so I had a couple of years out of trauma because obviously um, I've lived through trauma as well. So um, I was two and a half, I think when I had my first uh, foster placement and 17 when I left uh, foster care, in and out for a few years, and then um, did trauma therapy for a lot of years. And it kind of got to the point that my brain and body were saying, enough, you need a bit of a break now from trauma. So I stepped out, set up a a cafe with my daughter, (laughs) making uh, keto cakes and bread. Um, which I actually love, so I still do that. Um, as well as stepping back in a little bit into the trauma world. Right. So can I start you at the beginning then? Because it feels like there's the, there's obviously you've got perspectives and views on lots of different elements of you know the care system and therapy and how we yes. work with children and residential and social work. It seems like <laughs> you, there's a lot. Of, there's lots of stuff you can speak with, sort of genuine informed knowledge about and you know professional knowledge and personal knowledge so can i ask you if it's okay you know what can you tell me about why this little two and a half year old nancy ended up in the care system i certainly can yes we um my brother and myself and two um stepsisters lived in a a family that was quite dominated by alcoholism and domestic violence. Um, At the age of two and a half, um, dad's um, aggression, uh, apparently accidentally, but in my head that really doesn't matter, uh, took mum's life. 
So we ended up at that point with a period of about five years. Um, the elder two sisters were taken in by family on my mum's side and we had the extreme luxury of uh, staying with dad, <laughs> which then also meant family didn't want to know us because dad came along uh, with that. So up until about seven, we were in and out of care, left with neighbours a lot of the time, looking after ourselves. And then when I think I was seven, it was decided enough was enough. And then we were placed in care full time. I mean, that, I mean, there's enough, uh, there's so much stuff in there already, you know, by the time you're seven, what a complicated little, you know, worldview you must have had as a child and, you know, who you were and where you fitted in. That must have, I mean, can you remember that sort of being in and out? Is it, you know, what was your sort of views on foster care and that? Um, I am writing at the minute, um, and uh, one of the terms that I use, because it's, it's what it felt like, was that we went through periods of time of borrowing families. Um, and that it was, it was never really, even when, when I was older, and I was in a long-term placement for about seven years, it never, ever felt like my family. It always felt like a space that I was borrowing <clears throat> until my next move. Um, and I was a good kid. So uh, I, I was um, a conformist. My um, survival strategies were watch what people want and then give them it. And that's the best way of remaining safe. My brother, on the other hand, was a rebel. So his survival strategies were fight the world and everybody in it, um, which resulted in us eventually being separated. I mean, all of that sounds incredibly complicated. And we're really, you know, I mean, can I ask you what sort of time this was at? What, what period of time was this foster care experience? Um, so um, I was born in 67. So it was early 70s uh, when mum died. So it was from kind of early 70s um, that we were in and out and in and out. We had two, well, we had three. We were shipped off to a convent uh, when mum first died while dad was um, arrested. Um, and then placed back with him because there wasn't enough evidence. Mm. Um, and then uh, I remember quite vividly two short-term um, foster placements, one of them which was actually more threatening and abusive than being at home, uh, and the second one that was actually quite nice, mm. um, both before the time that I was four and a half. Um, then a bit of drifting in between and then the long-term placement when I was um, just before I was seven, I do believe it was. I mean, that I guess that's yeah, a time yeah. when foster care was regulated, was, had very loose regulation and, you know, anyone yes. with a spare room and, uh, 
you know, yeah. a big, a big heart could foster, I guess. I yes. it commas. In in later years, I um, <laughs> it gets better. My story. Uh, in later years, I, I managed to access some of my files um, from the from that period before we were accommodated full time, because the files from when I was accommodated full time uh, were actually burnt to make space. Um, which is a story in itself. <laughs> so I have nothing about my life from seven up other than what's in my brother's files from when he was uh, placed in a different authority. Um, but one of the things um, that's in the early files um, <clears throat> that I managed to, to get was a um, the social worker had written that um, they'd been out to visit and dad was on one of his absences, he used to go missing for a few days. Um, we were left on our own. Um, and they took us round to a neighbour's and asked the neighbour if we could stay there. And the neighbour said yes. And so they'd said, can you also enrol them in school? And the neighbour had said yes. And then the next sentence says, case closed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Which is... <laughs> It's kind of like, oh, so so then it's when I've read back on it, the big thing for me was like, oh, so we just didn't matter to anybody then. Yeah. Not just that we didn't matter to dad. Yeah. And I mean, uh, no, because I wasn't sure what time, what time period. And if you'd said, oh, that was the 40s or the 50s, I'd have gone, oh, right. Mm -hmm. I'm not too surprised by that. But, we're talking about the seventies, yes, early, yeah, early 70s. 70s. Yeah, and you yeah. just thought that the world would have, you know, wouldn't be in that place by then. Um, no, is it not hard to look back at that and be, you know, have really strong feelings about that? Um, although I like to think I'm in my early twenties, I'm in my mid fifties now, so. <laughs> I've had a lot of time to uh, work on it and, and process it. And I always knew uh, when I was doing my training to do therapy, I always knew I wanted to have a voice that could speak about what we went through as children um, and also speak about lessons that need to be learned. And, and many lessons have been, there's many things that are very different to what they were when we were kids, but it never ceases to amaze me the times when I come across experiences 50 odd years on, where I think, but that happened with us. Why is it still happening now? Yeah. And I think, go on, sorry. No, no, you, you go on because it's your, <laughs> your podcast. <laughs> I think a big part of that is, um, I mean, I love theory. I love reading all the theories behind attachment and um, uh, and trauma and dissociation. And we mentioned earlier Bruce Perry. He was one of my early uh, gurus when I was training. And we have this wealth of information, but sometimes I think we still don't get the basics. We still... Um, if I look back on, on the little bit of information that I've got in my um, files, I must have had probably eight or ten social workers um, from from the time when I was placed full time, uh, full term, um, and nobody, not one of them, knew me. 
and the entries that are in my files describe the compliant, well-behaved, intelligent little girl um, that I was, but nobody knew me. Mm-hmm. And no, and nobody actually knew what was happening in my life because I'd learned by that time you don't tell them. Um, and then when I when I kind of transport myself now, um, and I don't mean this in any disrespect, but I've had uh, run-ins with social workers when I'm working therapeutically, where social workers have, have said to me, "But I've known this kid for four years. How can you possibly know that?" Um, because they've never told me that, or they've never said that to me. And I'm like, <laughs> but why would they? Yeah. It's, it's not a, kids don't, kids that come from trauma don't openly sit and tell you the trauma. So it's kind of thing, well, that's one of my big things that, that I think very often we still place children on face value. Yeah. And um, we we place the performer part, and then um, adopters and foster carers are then left with this this huge difference from what they thought was being placed to what is. Yeah, with a lot, with a lot of professionals who've known the child for a long period of time, not accepting what they're actually seeing and experiencing. And that yeah. for me is a big issue because I wasn't the, the child that people saw in me wasn't the child that I was. It was the child that I had learned to be in order to gain some kind of safety in life. Almost like a, a like an avatar of what that child's protective personality would be that, you know, like a. Yes. Like yeah. you're talking about what you needed to do to be safe, that that yes. became this, this false personality. Yes. Yeah, so this um, in the book that I'm writing at the minute, I marry it up with poems, and one of the poems in there is about um, going to another um, family that you're borrowing and unpacking, and a part of it is um, sort of where do I unpack me? So this space for my shoes, this space for my coat, this space for my belongings, but where do I unpack me? Uh, and I think that's that's a big um, message, I think, that I would like to get across, that is very often the actual child is missed. Yeah. Um, and that and takes we need time, to doesn't aware. it? Yeah. And, and training as well, you know, and... Yes. Everyone needs to bring their A game to that. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I think you're right in that with, with training. I think there's more in-depth training needs to be given um, to social workers, to teachers, to anybody. We have a lot of traumatised children in this world, a lot of people who are given the task of caring for them and nurturing them and guiding them without the level of training that personally I think we need. I think there's a lot of theory out there. Sometimes I think there's a gap of translating the theory into what it actually feels to live that. If that makes yeah. sense. No, no, that makes total sense, but it, it feels, um, I don't feel particularly optimistic. If that's that. 
<laughs> no, well, I, I intend um, dying optimistic. <laughs> well, I mean, naturally, I am optimistic, but I just think when you're given, especially around social work, I suppose I'm, think, I'm thinking yeah. through that lens that, you know, the, the, the number of, the, the turnover of staff and the high caseloads, yes. just, just they're all, all just barriers to spending time with a child, which because there's absolutely. got to be an element of taking time. Um, absolutely. And I, I absolutely agree with you. Uh, sorry. No, no. On that one. <laughs> um, you, you talked about this, this sort of the separation between you and your brother. And, um, yes. and you, you were sort of talking about how the things you see now that reflect what you, your experience. And can you tell me, you know, again, I feel like I'm asking really personal questions. This isn't therapy, so you can tell me to bog off. No, it's fine. Um, you know, that relationship, was it close before you you know you he was you were separated from him and, and did it you know what was the impact of that on the relationship and what was it like beforehand um my uh but there's about 11 months between us right um and uh for a lot of a lot of time all i remember is me and him and i remember him being um a warrior um, and me being a crier, <laughs> so um, sticky situations. He was he was very often the one that would be this big brave. Well, not big because we were very little, but he would be the one that would like take me hand and lead me um, to wherever we needed to be. It would also be the one that would take me hand and lead me into trouble. <laughs> but we were kind of like allies. Um, and I think that was the reason why we were um, separated in the end, because um, because of his need to fight in order to survive. Um, yeah. and, and we'd got to a place where um, – in, in fact – I remember the day we were separated, actually. We, we were both placed together in a long-term placement. Um, and they decided they couldn't cope with him anymore, which I, could, I completely understand because he was, he was an out-and-out rebel. Um, but I was actually taken. I would have been probably about eight because he didn't last very long in that placement and sat down in a room with a guy who I'd never met in my life um, and told that they were thinking of moving him and um, asked really uh, what I thought of it and if it should happen. Um, and I can remember it vividly. <laughs> yes, I know. I can remember it vividly because I can just remember looking at this man and thinking um, that it was odd that I got a say because even at that age I was kind of like, does what I'm going to say matter? Yeah. Um, and then also just thinking, um, that I didn't want to move anymore. Right. And that was my big, th big thought in that moment. Um, so I just, uh, I can remember just shrugging it and then just saying, yeah. And that would be the end of it. And then being brought out, put in the car, crying and being told to stop crying. Um, and then that was it. It was gone. Um, 
and I think the relationship probably stayed but just took a different path. Right. Um, and did, did you remain in sort of contact with one another? Yes. Yeah, we, we had contact. Um, the uh, foster carer I was with would facilitate it sometimes. We'd go into the town and meet up with him. Sometimes um, the social worker would take me to whichever placement um, he was in and we would have contact there. And funnily enough, around the age of like 12, 13, our roles reversed and I kind of became the um, the mature, caring one in the relationship. So um, I was still have quite a good relationship uh, to this day. It just seems, you know, it's easy to spout off what we know about sibling relationships, isn't it? We, you know, it, it, we've got this really clear narrative, and there's no one even questioning that. But it just seems like uh, that doesn't change the sort of the bureaucratic need sometimes just to actually this isn't working, and the foster carer can't do it, which I get. You know, I, I get two yeah. two, chi- two children with complicated needs. Uh, you know, clearly experienced a lot of adversity, but but even the non like it seems nonsensical to sort of sit you down and say what do you think because if yes. they'd done what you wanted would that not have been your fault forever if you'd said yes or no or i but did yeah. carry that burden for a lot of years i did because he went on to some quite abusive placements um so a big bit about what i had to work through later as an adult was um was i responsible for sending him there if I'd have said no as that child in that room, if I'd have said no, I don't want him to go, he can't go, would he then have not had those placements that he, that he had? But in reality, it would have probably have been, um, we would have both yeah. gone to those placements. Um, but I suppose at, at that time, that was the bit that I was working through. Um, and we both came from experiences where um, we had massive um, amounts of shame and if, if bad things happened, they happened because of us. So I suppose it just um, tied into that. Um, but, yes, it, it's a bizarre a bizarre thing to be sat yeah. um, uh, and ask that question. So yeah. down your microphone. No, that's absolutely fine. It's not a problem. Um, I, <clears throat> I've got this idea then of your you you sort of going through the system and but being a very, you know, a child with a lot going on inside, like all children. Um, and so, what you, you talk about, you then you know you've gone on to work in the sector, and as you were leaving, as you were coming to leaving school, was it a clear decision? This is where I want to work. I want to work with children and young people or how did that come about um <laughs> initially i wanted to be an hairdresser yeah. <laughs> when i was about 14 15 which was bizarre because my hair was like um something from the uh, is it the air bear bunch <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i wasn't known for having good hair um then i kind of went like 15, 16, thinking I'd like to be a nanny or a school teacher. And then my last um, placement I had was 
um, linked with quite a, a, a staunch religion, um, which I'll, I'll tell you this little bit because it's, it's quite relevant to that. So um, I spent all my childhood knowing cognitively that mum was dead, um, but not believing that she was. Um, and with this really, really huge hope that she was going to come back and claim me one day. Yeah. Uh, until I was 14, didn't know her name. Until two years ago, didn't have a photo, so didn't know her face because uh, nobody spoke about her. So at 14, was placed temporarily in this um, home. Who The religion taught that when Armageddon comes, <clears throat> if anybody died in ignorance of their God, yeah. they would be resurrected onto the earth and... Um, those of that religion who survived Armageddon would live with them. Right. So kind of at 14, I was given this hope that not only would I know what my mum looked like, but I'd actually get to live a life with her. Um, so um, I stayed there and joined that religion um, right. because, it, because that then became a really, really big hope. So at that time, Anything that I thought I was going to do career-wise went out of the window <laughs> because what I was going to do was knock on doors and preach so that I could get through Armageddon to uh, live with my mum. <laughs> so, and me, my, my thoughts of doing anything then didn't um, come back until um, I'd married and I'd had three children within that religion and then left the religion. And then started thinking again about what I wanted to actually do with life. I mean, you've that was a very short sentence, but there's an awful lot in there. Um, mm. And it just it kind of uh, reflecting the sort of the vulnerability of young people, especially young people who've experienced adversity and the kind of the, the, the peculiar logic loops that they find themselves in. Um, I mean, looking back now that you know. It's, it's easy to look back with 2020, but looking back now, you know, was there anyone who could have guided you a different way um, or helped you? You know, where where were, you know, did you have a social worker who was, you know, because by the time you're in, you're in the 80s, you're a teenager. We're not that far away from where we are now then, are we, all of a sudden? <laughs> I, um, I had a social worker, um at that time, well, I think I think I had with about a year. I think I had about three um, different social workers, and I had a. I remember a young lady I really liked her um, was my social worker. She was the one who actually met me on a street corner and handed me a load of paperwork that told me uh, my mum's name and oh, by the way, did you know your dad killed her? <laughs> um, <laughs> Hang on, whoa, whoa, let's just pause a second there. I don't want to make light of it, but blimey, Nancy. <laughs> so, right, so you, no one had told you that you, you knew your mum had passed away, but no one yes. had kind of joined, made any sense of how that had happened. So what had you thought had happened to her? I knew that she'd had a fall down the stairs. Right. Um, that was, for some reason, um, indelibly imprinted in my head. Um, I remember 
um, at the time at two and a half, I remember vividly walking in through the door from the bottom of the stairs um, and collapsing. Um, and then I was never seen her again. So I think I'd, because we, we had regular contact with dad, well, I say regular, there were sometimes when he would disappear and we wouldn't see him, but then he would come back on the scene and he would never tell us anything. He wouldn't even speak a name. Um, so I just thought that she'd had a fall. Um, she was heavily pregnant at the time. So I thought she'd lost her balance and fallen down the stairs because of yeah. being uh, heavily pregnant. Um, I didn't know that, that dad had been involved in it and that he'd been arrested for it until that street corner when I was 14, um, which was a bit of a shock to say the least. Well, yeah, I mean, did the social worker know that you didn't know? You know, I'm just thinking that that's just not the place there's no good place to do it, but no. that's not the place to do it. Um, I do believe that, that she knew I didn't know because she knew that I knew nothing. Right. So, yeah. so she, she'd gone on a search to find me early files from before uh, we'd moved into that area, before we, we were play, uh, accommodated full time. Um. And she wouldn't have done it with any ill intent, I know that. Um, mm. But it was just, when I look back now, I just think, and I think this is one of my big things that, that I carry, that I, tr I try to put across, is the early messages in with our relationship with, with Dad and with the extended family, although I understand why nobody took us in. The early messages were we didn't matter. Uh, and we were nothing. And then when I look back over my experience in the care system, that message was quite often repeatedly um, stamped as true. Uh, and that's one of the one of the things that I'm really big on trying to get acknowledged and changed is that sometimes this system can be as abusive as in a different way yeah as as the early um abusive experience and that and i looking back at that time now i think had that been her niece or a sister or possibly even the next door neighbor would she have given them that news in the way I got it. Yeah. Does that make just, sense? Yeah, and it's a simple answer, isn't it? It's just a plain old mm. no. Um, and so it makes it, it does ask those questions about what a corporate parent means that no one gets to take responsibility of that. You know, mm. there's no, um, I had a friend who was a virtual school head and she said, uh, she realised that and she said, I, I try and act like every child is my child. Um, yes. And that, just puts a slightly different slant on everything, doesn't it? As you say, it's down to how you even share information, how you talk to a child and that. Yeah. Yeah. I this, wow. So. <laughs> I told right. you we'd be there till early hours at morning. <clears throat> yeah, I think there might be a need to be a part two, three, four and five at this rate. Um, so so you've, 
you're, you've traveled through the care system, you've kind of become involved in, you know, this specific sort of faith um, community. Were you in the community? Mm-hmm. Oh, so what yeah, then, so you, you sort of very briefly, you describe, you know, that, that, that sounds like it was quite quick. It was, you know, you're married, three children. And then, so what was, I feel like I'm prying. I am prying. But yeah, but you, you said you'd come on the podcast. If you, you know, if, if I can't yes. ask it, you'll tell me. Feel free to pry. Feel free <laughs> okay. to pry. Yeah, you'll dodge it if you need to dodge it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, all the time, were you? Was there a consciousness that your life experience had kind of given you a different worldview, and you saw the world differently, or you, you know, you felt differently about the world? Um, I think I always knew from 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 quite a young age that um, I wanted to make a difference in some way. I never, as a teenager, I never knew how, but I suppose that's why I probably started thinking I wanted to be a teacher or a nanny or that I wanted to do something that made a difference. But it wasn't until um, I was a young mum and then thinking about, Actually, I want to make a life here. Um, but then I started, like I say, first of all, I thought about social work um, and then moved into the more therapeutic side um, of care. So it would probably sound really bizarre and really corny. But I remember when I was training thinking, I'd, I always knew... I'd got a message that I wanted to give, but I just didn't know how to give it. So, so had you left school with sort of good qualifications? Were you in a position to sort of start to retrain even? Um, I mean, you, you you describe yourself as a married, a young married mum or, a, you know, a, a mum of three. How do you even start? Where do you start? <laughs> I left school... Um, when I was 16 and uh, my English teacher had um, really big dreams for me. He really wanted me to go on to university. Um, At that time I was um, in the religion with the belief that that doesn't matter because Armageddon's coming. And I can remember him sitting me down once um, and I didn't put the time into the revision and he was really disappointed with me. Um, results in the English literature exam and sat me down and, and said, um, I really want you to stay on. I think I think you can do really well. And I was like, well, I can't because I've got to pioneer and I've got to go knocking on doors. And, hmm. um, and he sat and he says to me, look, I'll make you a timetable that says that you can go and do all that that you feel you need to do, but you also come and do an education because otherwise you're wasting your brain. So you, you've got the potential to go and achieve something. And I didn't. I just walked away from it all. So I got minimal um, qualifications um, when I left. And then um, set up as a young mum when I uh, left the dad and decided, actually, I want to do something and started off in a bakery and as a cleaner in an old people's um, home while I went back to college to um, get some qualifications that meant I could go in a room and mess with people's heads. <laughs> well, 
I mean, <laughs> it seems like, I mean, you're just sort of demonstrating amazing resilience, really, because, you know, as a, as a young mum of three, as, as a solo parent of three, to go to college and work, I'm kind of thinking, yeah. who are the, you know, how do you manage that? You know, we often hear about the, the care leavers being really isolated in the community um, and having not having those families to fall back on. Was there any part of your family that you could fall back on or, or who were the people who were around you? Was there anyone? Um, there were a lovely couple, an older couple, who had been part of the religion who, uh, when I left the religion, um, it that had been kind of the whole life. You didn't make friends outside of it. Yeah. Um, so when when I made the decision to leave my husband, that wasn't allowed. Um, so then I was um, kind of cast out. So I didn't have a group of friends because all of my friends were uh, in the religion, but there were this one older couple that were really lovely and decided that they wouldn't turn to stone if they spoke to me. Um, so kind of stayed as a bit of a support. And then um, not the last foster family that I'd been in that were part of that religion, but the foster family before uh, I was still in touch with. Um, and and she was phenomenal uh, as a support. So, yeah, yeah. That, that was kind of it. And, of course, the, the kid's dad was still involved in the life, so yeah. um, I also had that. It seems help. like a quite... Quite, you know, as a young woman in her twenties, sounds like you had a lot going on. Yes, <laughs> that's understating <laughs> yes. it somewhat. So just a bit, and probably so you, that was probably actually that that was probably the the time when um, when I got a bit lost. Right, I was I was very um, good as a child. Everything you'd ever read about me in any of my reports was how good I was. Um, as a child, I was good as a teenager, as part of the religion, um, and then I kind of went out on my own in the kind of mid twenties, and I've just realised I've just stopped myself there because I was going to swear, and I've just realised I, I can't. So you can you um, can swear on the podcast, <laughs> mate. it's absolutely fine. Um, and I, I I kind of found myself in this um, position of thinking. I'm going to say fluff instead of, of the word. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know how to be. And here I am, responsible for three little lives. And actually, I don't know what my life is. <clears throat> and I don't know who I am outside of being a mother. Um, so they were probably um, a few crazy years. A few silly and inappropriate relationships um, and a bit of madness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was probably when all, when all my um, rebellious behaviours and stupid decisions um, were made at that point. But um, we're still here. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm... <laughs> I'm just conscious that we're only in your twenties, and there's, there's so much. I, I feel like you, you, I'm glad you're writing a book because um, it feels like there's an awful lot of um, 
there's so many steps to get to where you are now, isn't there? And it, uh, and, you know, we're constrained by, you know, just the length of the conversation. But mm. so, can you then move me on to then you, you've started to get involved with you've you've kind of you've been through what sounds like a total normal and appropriate reaction to kind of all of that other stuff. You've had yeah. those those mad moments. You've moved into on to kind of starting to turn the ship around and you start to become involved in you know in working with people and then there's a difference between working with people and then kind of moving into being a you know to therapy a therapist so how did that come about how did you make those decisions and where were you where are you where were you aiming for um i initially went back um just to just to get a taste of studying again and and um, seeing whether I could actually do it. So I went back and did um, psychology and sociology as kind of a, a, a pathway into, like I say, what I thought I was going to do, which was social work. Um, so I got those qualifications and then started the application to do my dips were. And pre that, you have to go in and have experience somewhere. Sorry, what's your dips were, just for people who don't know? <laughs> oh, sorry, for... The uh, diploma in social work. I don't know what the full thing stands for at that time. It's probably different now. But at that time, many, many years ago, that's where it was. Um, So I I, um, volunteered at Bernardo's um, for a little while and then um, went into residential care as a job. Uh, and that, like I say, that's when I was like, no, social work's not for me. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so decided instead to to go down getting qualifications um, for counselling. One of my big regrets in life is, well, it, it's not a regret. I'm quite happy with the path that I took. Sometimes it's a it's a closed door for me because I haven't got the pieces of paper that say that I'm as clever as I am. <laughs> because right. i wanted to get i wanted to get the basic qualification to literally get in the room and on the carpet with the kids yeah um so so i studied as much as i needed to study in order to to get into um doing that uh so i had a few years in uh, residential care um and then was picked up by a manager of a um, fostering, no, the adoption team. She was the manager of the adoption uh, part of it. So we're trying to set up a therapeutic unit, and I was within that unit and asked me if I'd be the um, guinea pig as the key worker mm. who was involved with the child and the therapist, which I very willingly said yes to. <clears throat> and the rest is history. <laughs> well, I mean, it does feel like a yeah a really fortuitous conversation, and then, but that must have been a really quite a moment when someone said, "No, you. This is what we want you to do. We want you to be that person who you sort of think. I wish I'd had that person." Was yes. it as simple as that? Um, I'd actually approached them while I was. Uh, I'd approached the team, um, the this manager, um, for a placement while I was studying. Um, right. but I approached at the wrong time because Ofsted were around, <laughs> so <laughs> it, it didn't happen. That's why I went to Bernardo's. Um, and then I ended up in, in this um, children's unit. 
And it was, it did feel like gold. It felt like the opportunity of a lifetime. So she already knew of me, but, but couldn't take me on at that time. And then came back and was, Oh, right. I know you. I've met you. Um, yeah. will you step into this role? And I was, yes, absolutely. I will. Um, and yeah, right. it was, hard. it was, it was hard at times because I'd not done all of my own therapy. So. Well, I, I was conscious of that, 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 you know, a key component of any sort of therapy, you know, any therapist or, you know, people work in that area is that they need to have their own stuff sort of kind of yes. sorted away, don't they? And I thought yeah. that must have been quite difficult to then, you know, to, to see your own experience reflected in the children that you're working with. And that must have caused some interesting days. Going back to what I was saying about when me and my brother were um, mm. separated, there was uh, one case that I was involved with with two sisters that had been placed who um, the plan had come to light that they were going to separate them and put they'd, they'd come back from a, a, a disrupted attachment where they'd been together. Um, and then they were in with us for a while, very, very different needs. Um, and then it was decided they were going to be put in separate placements. And I can remember for months um, fighting mm. against the decision and putting and, – and I can remember being in a meeting and crying about how they couldn't um, separate these girls. And then it, it being months after when I just sat and thought, shit. But I was actually crying for me there. Yeah, I was trying to replay what happened for me there because actually – it was the best decision for these girls and should have happened earlier. Um, but being very aware that actually I'd allowed some of my stuff as the professional in that setting to play out and take over actually um, the importance of, of what needed to happen for the children. And it was a massive, massive learning curve for me. Um, because that was totally opposite to what I ever wanted to do. But it mm. sneaked up on me and smacked me around the back of the head. And before I knew it, I was doing it. So, so that, no, I mean, that's really honest, because I think that that <clears> is, um, that is the danger, isn't it? That, that people become, like you said, that they're fixing their own problems through yeah. the cases. And that is really... And I mean, did you, did other people see that? I mean, did that put you in a vulnerable position, sort of from a your registration? Um, yeah. No, no, I don't think I don't think anybody else really uh, picked up on it because people, I think, within the home were split as to whether they should be separated right. or whether they should stay together. So it wasn't like I wasn't a lone wolf and a, a lone voice um, in it. It was just afterwards. When I was kind of sitting and thinking, why, why did I get so emotionally involved in that fight? Why, why did it feel so personal to me? And it felt personal to me because it had become personal to me. That, yeah. that on some level, I'd started to try to redress something that had happened. Mm. My experience. And so, it, I mean, in the midst <clears> of all that, then you you describe sort of having some of you know someone getting you letting someone in to start to do that work with yourself. And had that been, was that a long, pro I mean, it's probably, it's a, a never-ending process, isn't it? But um, 
Al, it's like you've read my story. The questions you're asking are really key questions for the best bits of my story. Oh, I'm not giving away the good bits. There's no spoilers. Don't tell us how it ends. <laughs> no, no. And this this bit um, I actually use on training when I'm doing the training. Um, so, so um, <laughs> well, go on then. Give, give us a. Give tell us you this the po- bit. Yeah, go on. So, so. In training to do what I wanted to do, obviously you have to do your own work before you let yeah. loose on, on people. Um, and I was into the third year before I would agree to go because I was, um, I don't want to sit and open up my wounds and be vulnerable. Thank you very much. Uh, and But in the end, I knew I had to do it in order to get the qualification at the end. So um, I went to see my first counsellor. You're going to love this. It was a lovely, lovely woman. Um, and I kind of sat and in the, the first five minutes, gave her a quick rundown of probably the first seven years of my life. Uh, and then looked across the turn. She was sat crying, um, and I, which kind of stopped me short. And then well, uh, she I was going to say, so yeah. it's like, the, it's like this, these, Russian dolls, isn't it? It's like, no, I mean, she needs to go away and talk about her own boundaries and her own. <laughs> yeah. So it gets better. It gets better because uh, then she kind of gathered herself and took a deep breath and said, well, at least you're not a drug addict or a prostitute. <laughs> at, at which point I kind of sat and thought, well, I haven't told you that I'm not. And is that why, where my story should have ended is that the assumption that that's yeah. where my beginning would take me um and it, it was a real kind of oh okay then <laughs> so i came yeah. in feeling a bit messed up and now i'm going out feeling even more messed up because apparently that is the view <laughs> of, yeah, that, of what so i was the, supposed yeah. to attain to yeah i mean it's we're laughing, but it's not funny. No, it? not in the least. Not in the least. Not in the least. That is the very last thing you need to come out of after you've, especially yes. you, you've, you've described like this, like right. Well, I'm going to have to do it, and so it needs to, you know, and you need it needs to be good and safe. And yeah. That isn't what it was. No, no. So I didn't stay with, with that. <laughs> I see how that works. Yeah, that's fair. So, so you broke the first counselor. <laughs> got them got them deregistered <laughs> no i didn't i just decided not to go back i just i think i think in in all seriousness i think i just came away thinking shit my stuff's too heavy too old so i need to not tell it which is awful mm. so the next the next time that i went in i, I kind of tapered it back a bit I was kind of like, okay, I won't give the full um, yeah. stuff. I'll do what I need to do to get through the process. For them to say, oh, yeah, she's done her work. She's all right. <laughs> Which, Which is, um, it, it's a different sort of bad, isn't it? It's Yeah. 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 But that's, a, um, that's kind of digressing slightly. You did say I could just talk. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> one of the reasons why I write is because it's it's talking without being interrupted. 
Right. And I do love to talk. <laughs> I, I so, can not um, interrupt you if you want. I can just let you go. I'll, I'll just, no, it's fine. Oh, I'll go off no. and have my tea. <laughs> <laughs> you see, now you've wounded me. Have I? Well, you know, got to use these social work skills, haven't I? You know? Um. So, yeah, the, the other thing, just, just on that, that I kind of learned through life, what that's very difficult, and, and probably people who come from a similar background will relate to this, is I would very often find myself in social situations because my life to me was normal. That, yeah. that, was, that was my life. It might not have been great, but it was my life. So I'd find myself in social situations where people were talking about childhood and talking about like different <laughs> little stories and anecdotes that they would say, and, and I'd join in, uh, and the room would go silent. And then the, after a while I was like, oh, it's one of those conversations. Oh, this is where I just listen. Um, I can remember telling somebody at work once a story about one of the homes, the placements that I was in. My uh, bedroom was up in the loft. Um, not done out like we know lofts to be done out. Yeah. Um, and on a night time, I went up the little ladder with my bucket to pee in and the tray to put on the top of it. And the ladder was um, taken off, uh, taken down, and the um, thing was shut until the next morning. Um, and I just kind of described it like that. That wasn't the story I was telling her. <laughs> that was the build up to it because I was telling her something else. But I'd got to that point and looked at her and she was stood with her mouth open and tears in her eyes. And and then, again, it was one of them moments of, oh, shit. Right, okay, <laughs> that's too much as well. But to yeah. me, it, it, it was just that part was just of the, what it was. It was like the preamble before you got to the, to the to whatever you were going to say. Yeah. It was just yeah, normal. It was kind of like setting the scene and then... That was it. We didn't do the rest of the story because <laughs> the scene setting was a bit too much in itself. And that's really difficult. That's one of the, th I, I think that's probably one of the things I find the most difficult coming from where I've come from is that there's a lot of norm. And I, I still find it difficult to this day. I'll quite often be in social situations where I'll take myself away and I might have a bit of a uh, a cry, especially if I've had a couple of gin and tonics, uh, because I really want to join in, and and I know I can't. It's it's odd because it, it, I'm thinking, you know, this isn't therapy, but I just sort of it seems like you're dislocated from the world, and there is the temptation then to bring out the avatar, the palatable version of you, and your stories, yeah. uh, which is then which is replicating this little girl who. I'll tell you what you need to hear. Yeah, um, I don't. I don't think I can filter it anymore. I just don't say it. Every now and again, I slip, um, and a story will come out. <laughs> and sometimes it's okay, um, but other times it still has the. It kind of ends um, the conversation in the room, um, but it's it's difficult. I think it's that's probably. Um, the most difficult aspect for me um, that still hangs with me from my experience. I think the rest of it I've dealt with and put to bed. Um, but that's mm. the bit that still stays with me sometimes. 
So thank you for giving me a platform where I can talk about it. <laughs> oh, I mean, it is, it's, it's such an insight into your experience and likely comparable to other people's experiences. How do your family, I mean, you've got fam, you've got children. Yeah. How do your family sort of, how do they rec- make sense of that? Do they know, do they, you know, what's their they view do. on your life and experiences? Um, As adults now, um, um, I do believe, well, I know because they tell me that they're extremely proud of um, who I've become and who I am. Um, As children, obviously, they um, suffered the consequences of of my... um, maladapted way of being an adult coming from a different difficult childhood so they were never uh, harmed in any way but on an emotional level um i was probably uh, more messed up than what they could have done with um with a mum and i'm not going to go particularly deep on that because there's bits that they don't know about uh, where life took me um, at that point. But I think one of the big things was, and, and again, something that a lot of probably girls and, and maybe some boys will relate to is um, from probably the age of eight or nine, um, my focus was on being old enough to have my own children because I had this big belief that that would fill this huge gap, this chasm that I felt inside. If I just had my children and my family, then that would be it. Everything would be okay. Mm. <clears throat> um, and what I, what actually happened was when I had me, um, my first daughter, was it just ripped open the wounds completely. And then the whole trauma of losing mum and growing up without her and uh, the loss and the grieving for that loss that I never did as a child just came flooding in. Um, and my, my children were all quite close together. There's two years uh, between them. So that kind of um, rawness of them becoming a mum and losing that dream that had kept me going for years, that this would just make life okay and actually life became a bit unbearable, mm. um, meant that I then wasn't the mum that I'd always dreamt that I would be. Um, I think I, mean, I think I was, sorry. I think I was okay. Yeah, <laughs> and, and they they're all lovely um, adults now with uh, families of their own and lives of their own. Um, but there were there were there were some tough years. And difficult I mean, it, relationships. Just it sort of it dispels the myth that, you know, I heard it today. I, I can't remember where I was, but I heard someone saying, oh, children are resilient. Oh, it's on the news. It was someone was saying, oh, children are resilient. And I was thinking, no, they're not. They just keep breathing. They keep going. And yeah. that, that the impact of that adversity, both 
you know, in your family, both in the system, that it just it seems to it casts a shadow that touches everything. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like you've brought a lot of sunshine, and you've ca- you've got, but the shadows, are, you know, they're, they're not gone, are they? Is that am I? Uh, they're not. If you look hard enough, it seems like yeah. they're still there. Yeah. It's a, I'm not doing this as a Michael Parkinson, I'm going to sell my book thing. But <laughs> it's relevant to what you're saying. The first title that I thought of for it was um, When Trauma Haunts You. Because I think the that is very true. It's not going to be that now. Um but that is very true that that it's kind of I've done masses and masses of work. Um and I can now talk about my story mm. um quite openly and I'm okay with it. I can even have a giggle about it and um which which was where I wanted to be. But there's always that little bit in the background that I don't think you ever ever fully um, resolve mm. the trauma. I think there's there's always something in life that can just um, bump against that wound that just makes you feel it again. The therapy that I've had stops it overtaking my life, but it doesn't stop the soreness sometimes if I get a bump on that old wound, which is um, the bit that I think is is... The yeah. haunting bit. Yeah. I mean, that's really, really well articulated. And can I, I'm conscious that we've, we've spent, <laughs> as you said, you, when there's so much to talk about. Um, and, you know, yeah. we're sort of sat of us slightly constrained by format. But could you tell me a little bit about what you do now? And, you know, what, you know, how that, how, what, well, yeah, what do you do now? Okay. <laughs> Um, I make lovely pizza bases that are really low carb and sugar free. Excellent. <laughs> um, I've, I've, for a lot of years, um, I did uh, the therapy side, had a step out of it, um, but never stepped away from the training. I have a massive, massive passion for training. Um, and I'm very proud of the training that, that I do a, a, a six week, um, it's called a therapeutic parenting course but I really struggle with that because I don't think it 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 has therapeutic parenting an essence of that to it but it's it's more about understanding what happens to the autonomic nervous system of a child in trauma and understanding that that doesn't just reset itself once you bring them out of the trauma um, and I think that's very often missed when we look at reparenting um, children. And if we don't reset that, it don't matter how many strategies you've got, they're not going to be consistent. Mm. Um, so that's my big passion is is um, in training and um, talking about um not not just the care system, but mental health in itself. I think sometimes we live in a culture where we say, oh, yeah, mental health, yeah, yeah, it's a big issue, isn't it? Uh, let's look at how we, uh, what it's like when it's better. 
and we kind of go from we acknowledge it to yeah but let's look at how it's healed and we don't sit with the people in the horribleness of it my my feeling is that we kind of like oh yeah it's horrible let's just brush that to one side and let's think about it's done now how can you have a nice life um, and, and within that, and it's the same with our kids. Uh, I say our kids. <laughs> you know what I mean, don't you? Yeah. Um, is that there's a, a period in that healing process where the fact that you sat in that shit and were covered by that shit needs to be validated before you get to the healing bit and the let's move to the nice stuff. Um, and, and we don't like to hear it. Part of what I've been telling you here is that I know that people don't like to hear it. Um, yeah. But but I can't make my life not be what my life was. Mm. And it doesn't mean that because my life doesn't fit into a niceness and a normalness, it doesn't mean that my life wasn't valid and that my experience wasn't valid. I'm rambling now, aren't I? No, no, I think it. <laughs> everything informs everything, doesn't it? And so yeah. where can people, um, you've got a website. What is your website? Um, NM Trauma Recovery. Um, um, we'll, we'll put a link in the notes as well, so don't worry if it's, if people don't okay. get it. Um, I'm, not a, I'm, I'm not very technologically gifted. So what I do say to people is, yes, I've got a website, um, but if you want to know anything, contact me. <laughs> right. And do you have a Facebook page or do you have I a... I do. Yes. Right. I've got um, a Facebook page that, again, is NM Trauma Recovery, and that's where I tend to put more on. Right. Uh, I tend to have more engagement um, with mm -hmm. that. Because there's more connection with people. Websites don't connect with people, and I'm a people person. Yeah. Um, well, what I'd love to do is, um, I mean, you've been so generous with your time and your story. Uh, what I'd love mm -hmm. to do, though, is to find out more about your training. And so maybe could, you, could we get you back on the podcast in the future and talk about some other stuff around, you know, the trauma recovery and you know, the work that you do and, you know, all the work that you've done, and, but also your training and, you know, and shine a light on that sort of, you know, that, that perspective and that model of, of supporting children. Oh, would I like to come and talk again? Let me think. Difficult question. <laughs> you know, don't don't answer too quickly. Oh, why not? Why the heck not? <laughs> well, Nancy, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you chatting to me. And again, as I said, so generous with your time and your story and you Welcome. know, so open. Uh, so look after yourself and we'll speak to you soon. Thank you for having me. Recording stopped. <laughs>